It is Saturday the 20th of February 2021 and the time is 3.06pm. Um, I'm joined here today by two very, very special people, Akil Gohil and Ashok Gohil. Now, Akil, you are Ashok's son, and so I'm going to let you introduce your father to everyone for us. So I'm here with my dad, uh, who is the eldest of four children. Uh, he moved, he was born in Kenya, lived in Tanzania for a long time and moved over to England uh, in the 1970s. Uh, he worked in quite a few different jobs, including fashion, uh, and now works as a retail specialist at Heathrow Airport. And we current, currently live in Harrow, um, in the house where I was born, um, where they've lived for the last 30 years or so. Yeah, so Uncle, you want to explain to everyone, when and where were you born? I was born in Mombasa, in Kenya, way back in the 50s. Um, my father was born there. We were born, both of us were born in the same house. Now, obviously, in those days, there were no records as such. So we assume as a family that my grandfather probably came to Africa uh, from India late 1800s to early 1900s. Wow, so obviously, it's a long time. It was a long time. And I think they travel in the Daos, which what the Arabs used to use from Eden, because that was the main port in those days, as the history goes. The only way people back home in India knew if somebody got back to Zanzibar, Dar es Salaam, or Mombasa, was the route what I've been told or always been maintained is that from you either came from Bombay or from you came from Porbandar. That's how the Daos were coming. And they went from there to Karachi, maybe Aden. Then they came to Zanzibar, then to Dar es Salaam, and then to Mombasa. That was the route. And in years gone by afterwards, it started coming from Aden to straight to Mombasa. Then there were routes straight from Porbandar, right across the Indian Ocean. Uh, the journey time, a month, month and a half, two months, Wind direction, no other turbo power or engine um, were introduced in those days. So, and the way people knew back home was if somebody on the return journey uh, was going to the same place, you send a little note of, can you give it to so-and-so at so-and-so place for us? That's how the postal system went. And then people back in India knew you reached there safely. There must be a lot of anxiety because you know, you wouldn't have known if your message would have definitely been received by your loved ones back in India, right? Well, uh, I would think so because <clears throat> also people taking your message, you wouldn't know whether they made it to India or not until somebody on the return sent a message from your family say, oh, yeah, we got your message, you're happy, you're fine, uh, blah, blah, we are all okay here and they've got a message back to you. So then you know. People who took your message, they reached there safely. When they came back, that's quite safe. So that's how the family journey started into from India to Africa. And to think, I can't even drive down to Croydon without having to then text my parents saying I've reached here safely. Exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot different to uh, receiving that blue tick on WhatsApp, knowing that you know the person's received your message. It's a it's a different world. Um, and so yes. then you were born in the 50s, you said, in, in Mombasa. Yeah. And how long were you in Mombasa for? 
I was in Mombasa about four years. Okay, so you were very young when you left. Yeah, I was about three and a half, maybe four, approximately four years, let's say. Okay, and then where did your journey go from there? Uh, as a four-year-old boy, where did you end up next? We went to Dar es Salaam. Because my father, when he was in Mombasa, he was working for the East African Customs and Railways, Harbour and Port, so, or Railways and Harbour, rather. And he had the opportunity to get to a higher position, get a promotion, and move on to Dar es Salaam. So we ended up in Dar es Salaam. And what was life like there? Um, Dar es Salaam was very good in those days. Uh, my primary education was in Dar es Salaam, in a school called Matendeni Primary School. Uh, when we moved there, it was my sister and myself, two of us. We came, and then my other, my brother and my other sister, they were born in Dar es Salaam. So that's how the family ended up. So you had four, four, four young kids. Four um, young kids, yeah. Four young kids. What were your friends like at primary school? Were there a lot of other Asians like you? Or what was yeah, the background of your friends? there were a lot of Asians there. There were a lot mm. of Asians, a small community, um, but very tightly knitted because it wasn't like, I mean, if you can imagine Mombasa, what it is now, and Mombasa, what was in the 50s, it's a completely different ballgame. And Dar es Salaam, when we were there, and what it is now, I've seen it on online sometimes. I Google search what's where my birthplace was. When this little prince here, <laughs> he went to Tanzania and brought some pictures back, it brought some memories, but it showed how quickly it's grown mm. in Dar es Salaam. And I've never been back almost 50 years since I've left Dar es Salaam. Would you never ever want to? Do you ever have that feeling of wanting to go back? Um, I do. I think if I go back, I want to go with the Akil and Nira and Nima to, you know, to go back, uh, see where we were born, actually, rather than going where we lived, and also explore East Africa and certain other parts of Africa to see the wildlife, maybe. Mm. So growing up as a young boy, you were the eldest of four children. Yeah. Um, and, and what was that like being, you know, being the eldest and, you know, living this life where you had just moved from one country to another? Were there um, any struggles life, you faced? Life for us was, I think when we were that little, we never realised whether life was hard, good, bad or ugly. You know, you, you sort of, if you want something or you needed something, you wanted to be somewhere, it was done for you. There the thing was, it was a very simple life though. Um, a lot of people were envious of how others lived. Um, we were very fortunate in so many respects. Uh, family background, like my uncles, my dad's uncles and aunts, uh, they were, Fairly affluent, I would say, because they used to run a taxi company. So obviously they had quite a few cars. Now in 1900s and 1920s, 1930s, somewhere around there, you know, to own a few cars, you've got to be 
having a lot of money or something. You know, yeah, it's a luxury. Uh, the cars don't come cheap, you know, in those days even. But that's what it was. And I think going back, and my father was a, a very ambitious person in so many ways. But unfortunately, his ambitions were never sort of fulfilled. Surely, because his father, my granddad, passed away at a very young age when my dad was very young, almost about six, seven year old. So he was brought up by my grandmother and his maternal family. So he had a lot of influence of his maternal family, which now reflects on us as well. So we've been, they've seen a hard life. My father had seen part of the hard life, but then on the other half of the family, we were all living together. Uh, that was before we came and they had a very good bond. Now that bond moved from Mombasa to Dar es Salaam. So when I said we were a little bit fortunate was um, because of what my father's situation, position was in the customs where he was working. He had a very quite a high position. Uh, he rapidly moved on. Uh, he was a chief cashier for East African government. And obviously, it was a very responsible job at the same time. But that gave us a very, not a luxurious life, but if somebody was to put it that if you wanted something, you had it. And a lot of other children were quite envious. So, whoa, you got that. I mean, to give you an example, we used to always have brand new books, reading books, story books, and at the age of what, six, five, six years, we had all the toys, all the fancy toys, like mechanos, and a lot of children would never even heard what is a mechano in those days. So we were very fortunate in that respect. Did you, did you feel that when you were young? Did you feel that you, you knew that you had that, you know, a bit, bit more privileged life than perhaps other children? I think we felt that um, later in the life. Mm. At the time, we didn't realise, because when you're little, you don't know any different whether if you got it, you got it. If you haven't, you haven't. But this, this day and age, in contrast, the kids are completely different. Uh, they want a mobile phone, they want this, they want iPad and all sorts things because that's the way of life over there uh, none of this was available to us never heard of it and probably were if they were in existence we never heard but yeah i mean we, we felt that uh, we were lucky in so many ways later in the life but uh, i would say mid-20s you know as and you went through one phase to the next phase uh, then you realize how lucky you were, what you had then, compared to a lot of other people. Yeah, of course. In hindsight, it's always easier to look back. Um, yes. So when you were growing up in Dar es Salaam, how would you have described your sense of identity? Did you identify as Indian? Do you feel like, you know, your parents oh, had instilled we that? Indians, so much Indians, yes. Yeah. Uh, we're a small community, very much involved uh, in it. Uh, education was all Gujarati medium uh, from in the primary school from standard one to standard six or ES six, what we call it now here. Yeah. That was all Gujarati medium. Everything. So you came, 
you can read and write in Gujarati as well? Obviously, I know you can speak. Uh, I'd like to say yes. <laughs> there was a time when I could do it fluently, but I think in the later years, I could make a lot of mistakes in writing, yes. Yeah, I'm sure it would come back. <laughs> if I started writing regularly, you know, quite often now, I'll mm. pick it up again. Uh, I can speak Gujarati very fluently. There's no problem with that. Read might take slightly longer, but yeah, I can still do it. And then when it came into secondary education, it was um, Swahili was the medium. English was a second language and Gujarati was out completely. <laughs> and that's how it was. And how is your Swahili now? Uh, very rusty. Yeah. <laughs> very rusty. Very I rusty. try and speak a little bit uh, when I get passengers flying through, you know, going back to Kenya, Tanzania. I was born as a Kenyan citizen purely on the grounds that my father was born in Kenya and I was born in Kenya. So I was an automatic Kenya citizen and I had a Kenyan passport till I came to this country, which will come back later. Yeah. Okay. And growing up, what were your hobbies like? What did you get up to in your spare time? In Dar es Salaam, we were, my education wise, uh, I did my all levels there. And the athletic facilities were a lot there. We had a lot of chances and options up there. Uh, Sporting-wise, like playing tennis or other games, it was, if there was, we were not probably exposed too much. And what used to be called, in Gujarati, we used to call it a karama. It's very much like an activity center, like athletic center. Because yeah. you played some games, but mainly it was all athletic based and used to be very good at those and had quite a lot of prizes won that in those days as a competitor. Yeah. Always like to win. Every day out, one hour into that center, um, go through the temple, come back to the temple on Fridays and Saturdays, on Fridays, I think if I remember right, we get, um, we used to look forward because we used to get uh, boy chanas and chili powder in it. So when you come back from the activities, you're hungry on a Friday, you get a mouth, uh, sorry, handful of it, and yeah. you're munching away before you go home. <laughs> and yeah. That was the idea. Yeah. And I know you're very, very artistic as well, and you have a creative flair to you. So do you want to explain a bit more about that? Artistic side, I think it runs in the family. It comes from my dad's side. Uh, my dad was a very great artist. And I came across when, sadly, when he passed away about 10 years ago, I came across his the, my old book, and it was one of the uh, pictures he had painted, and it was Mark Twain. Now that's in American history, yeah. going back a long time. And he assisted me in drawing that picture. And that's how, when I first started learning and getting into very artistic skill. The other side of the artistic skill was, um, he was very handy at a lot of things. Uh, in Mombasa, when he was there before we, ever were dreamt of or came along. Um, he and my uncle or his cousin in those days, uh, they used to sort of do a lot of housework, like painting, maintenance, decorating, 
uh, I for small details. And I think that comes into us rather in, uh, in me. And I'm hoping that one day he'll pick up those, which is doing quite a great deal, you know, is uh, coming yeah. along slowly. slowly, but surely it's the matter of practice. And that's how the artistic side comes in. He was a good photographer. He used to develop uh, his own films, print, take pictures. He had a lovely camera, which no one can repair it. I'd like to have it repaired and put it in a cabinet as a display. It's somewhere in the house, but I don't know where it is. One of us have got that camera. Yeah. It's the old, um, I can't even think of the name. It's like box open, flip open on the front and the lens. One of those old school ones. Yeah. And the old 12 mil films, the roll films, big long rolls. So that's where the artistic side is mostly the father's side of the family. And what do you, that's your father's side. What about your mother's side? What do you think you inherited from your mother's side of the family? Mother's side of family were all um, into the, um, what shall we call it, as the tailoring profession. Coming back as, uh, because we are from the background of the tailors, as yeah, a, let's explain a, that a bit more. So, what do you, when you say background of the tailors, what, what do you mean by that? Explain for the as, audience. You know, in, uh, as a background, being being an Indian, and you know, in India, we were all classified as by your profession. If you were uh, follow the trade of gold, then you'd be goldsmith, silversmith. If you followed the shoe trade, you'd be called mochi or going in that. So we were tailors as a family as a family tree, hence the tailoring was always in the blood. And you wouldn't see any of our family cells without a machine. Well, anyone in the house will have a sewing machine. And so my mother's side of the family had followed the family tradition. We still have the, uh, the machine here today, don't we? We have, one of we have a machine. Unfortunately, mm. it's not working. It's got to be repaired, but it's something I quite like doing as well from time to time. I do all my own my own repairs. I don't take them out to the uh, minor repairs. I'll do it. If there's something major and I can't handle it, then I'll take them and get them done outside. Big question. Yeah. Akil, do you know how to sew? <laughs> I know the answer <laughs> to that. <laughs> he will learn. He will learn. Um, no, I have I've <laughs> taught me out with that one. So that's, no You've got to take on the, the tailoring heritage there and a learn how to sew a button or two definitely but, but it, it's interesting how much that's kind of defined your jobs and your family profession yeah. you know in India and somewhat continued into Africa whereas today I'd say most people uh, you know, some people kind of still follow their family business more kind of out of practicality rather than because it kind of inherently kind of built into them so it's interesting yeah. to see how that's kind of gone away as we moved, moved here for sure um and now, okay, so you grew up in, um, or most of your, you know, your teenage years in Dar es Salaam. And then how did you end up in Harrow? <laughs> what were the circumstances around that? Um, anyway, when we were in, in school, let's go back one page, back to East Africa. Whilst my father was, well, he was, that's the only job he ever did was in East African customs. He was very privileged, uh, the rank and the position he had. We always had a cruise travel every three years. Now, when I came that uh, said earlier um, that we were envious of 
sacrifice so many little kids and what we had and what we were doing was this was one of the other side of it that um, we went to India about I can count I must have gone to India about six seven times in a short period of time by cruise and by air which hardly people in from say 40s onwards, 30s onwards, we've been living in Africa for 40, 50 years and never been to India. And here we are, uh, from the age of year and a half, I started traveling long distance. From Dar es Salaam, from Mombasa to India, India back, from Dar es Salaam to India, all the way up to 1970. Was that to see family in India? Yeah, yeah. It's. Um, mainly my mother's side, my maternal family. We went to, we had a place in, place called Jamnagar in Gujarat. So when we are, whenever we went to India, uh, whether we went via Porbandar or Bombay as a port, uh, landing port, um, we would go by train journey from there to Gujarat, uh, which would take overnight journey, stay at my mum's, my grandma's place, for a week or so, then go back to Jamnagar. Very small house, nothing fancy, but if it is, if it was in this country, it would become grade two, grade three listed building now. Uh, it's that old, that building. Mm, yeah. So, you know, we used to travel a lot. Uh, my dad's side of the family has always traveled. And I remember in 1961, we went to India by air. That was the first time we traveled on air. A lot of what people have like? heard of being getting onto the aircraft. We've never, <laughs> not even seen Dar es Salaam's airport. And here we are, um, eight, nine-year-olds. We're flying. Going you must have been very excited. Ah, it was excitement. It was. So that was my dad's privilege. And we, I think I'm brothers and sisters, we were very lucky in that way, that we had that, whereas a lot of families and the children, what I can see, looking back, you know, they didn't have that sort of privilege. And I think the financial circumstances then when probably one person, the father working, and the family of, no matter how many, what number of siblings that they had, uh, or children they had, it was only father working and the rest depending on him to support the family. So coming back to your question, how I ended up in England, in 1970, uh, I went to India. That was my last trip by cruise. And we used to go from uh, Dar es Salaam, Zanzibar, Mombasa, Seychelles, Karachi, Bombay. Sometimes we miss Karachi out, but we always go via Seychelles. So we stopped there. And this time I stopped three days. I said, right, I'm not going to get this chance again. That would be my last cruise. So I made the most of it. And I was in India for about six months. I did my part of my A-levels there. And then in October the 10th, I landed at Heathrow, and that's in 1970. So it's fit, coming on to this year, 51 years. Wow. 
So what made you go from India to England? Right. The, at the time, uh, the education, the academic year in India is at a different time to the start of the academic year in the UK. In India, it started in something like in April. And in UK, September, the new academic year starts. So whilst I was in between in transition of which way to go, father said, look, it's not going to cost us anything to go that way. So I said, fine, I agree. And I want to go there. Let's make the most of the trip anyway. So I went in April there. And then came from there, whilst I was waiting to get everything fixed in the college, which my uncle, uh, we all know him as his nickname, Katapapa, uh, he was the one who actually did everything for me. And wherever we are today, me personally, um, I feel that I'll wait to him. So Whatever, yeah. he was already in England? He was already here because he came in the 60s, late 60s. Can you explain um, the relation to Katukaka? How, how, how is he related to you? He is uh, my dad's cousin. Okay. Is my dad's uncle's um, son, his cousin? Yeah, I call him uncle because he's a younger brother of my dad, as such. He was my dad's mama's son, my dad's mama, maternal yes. uncle. So that's how the relationship comes. And as yeah. you know, in our culture, we always, elder, we always call it an uncle. And being as um, comes on the paternal side, is always the uncle kaka. So that's how it is. Okay, so you landed at Heathrow in the 70s and you know Katukaka obviously who sort of helps you um, as you come to England. Do you know anyone else in England at that time? Uh, my own cousin was here just two weeks before me or three weeks before me. Okay. Uh, he used to live in Mombasa, still in the same house where I was born, but slightly um, getting away from the point, which I'll come back in a minute. Um, we left that house and we were staying in government quarters, which was uh, all given by the customer dad's work. They were giving out the residential flats. And in those days, he had, my dad had three or four bedroom house. And one of the bedrooms, believe it or not, was for my uncle's little puppy. Oh. <laughs> and he grew up to be a big German shepherd. And I used to go like at the age of a year and a half, I used to do a whole, like a horse riding on him. That dog, he grew up so big. He was yeah. a fantastic dog. Absolutely brilliant. Okay, so let's, let's build this picture then. So you've landed in Heathrow with your three siblings and your mum and dad. And yeah. No, my you... mom, I came by on my own. Oh, so you uh, came by yourself, sorry, initially. Yeah, when I left Dar es Salaam to go to India, I left on my own. Mm -hmm. um, and when I came from India, I was living at some of the family friends' uh, house for a, few, for a few months. And then I stayed in a hotel, which had a student accommodation built in. So we were part of the student side, not in the actual hotel. But the accommodation was like a hotel complex. 
So the rest of your siblings still. Yeah, yeah, my mum and dad, uh, my brother and sister, they were still in Dasgram when I was in India. When I came here, they came about seventy-two, uh, two years after I came here. Okay, and what was the reason for when you initially left for England? Why did you want to come to England? Um, it was purely trying not to lose up the time between the two colleges. Because okay. in, in April, my application hadn't been successful. Well, still pending for a response from UK. It came in about July. So we went up to India prior to it. So why, why did you want to move to England at all? It's only because Katsukata um, arranged it for us. He was sponsoring us to come over, like he sponsored my other cousin, my dad's elder brother's son. Uh, he came two weeks, three weeks before me. So was the plan then for the rest of the family to follow? The rest of the family uh, came here purely because on my dad's medical ground. And he, some, he experienced some medical issues and he retired on medical ground. And he was given a choice whether to go to India or come to England, all expenses paid for and we chose to come here. And when you came to England, what were you doing? Were you studying? Were you working? I started doing my A-levels, yes. Your A-levels, of course. Yeah, I did my um, A-levels here, and which followed by doing my graphics. And I did uh, my photography here. And I did a lot of business studies at St. Jesus College in Oxford. And I did the final course I did was the fashion illustration at St. Martin's College in Leicester Square. Yeah. In between, I've done Martin's. a lot of vocational courses, uh, been to the School of uh, Fashion Modeling in Bond Street. Wow. And I've done a lot of things um, in a different aspects of life. Yeah, clearly. And what was that like? So you, you know, you grew up in East Africa most of your life and then you come to England and you're doing all these vocational courses at these institutions in London and working in like the fashion world. That must have been quite a contrast for you. It was very much contrast. I think the first day when I landed here and the next morning, when I came out of the Heathrow Airport and we got in the car to go on to my uncle's place where he was living in Hounslow and we went through the tunnel as we come out of Heathrow. The first tunnel. I've never seen a tunnel before. Um, mm -hmm. It was snowing, it was sleet, snow, rain, everything, freezing cold. The cold these days, what we see in October, is nowhere near as what used to be in 1970. I tell you, it was freezing cold. I made one shirt, a light jacket, drain pipe trousers, tight trousers in those days. and. Completely. I mean, if I look at some of my photos, I think, was that me? Oh my God. <laughs> uh, and I thought to myself, what have I done to come to this country in this prison cold? And I think that was my first reaction. As time went by, and I went to the college and met a few friends and from Africa, and they were, and we got good friends. And things gradually changed after that, and it was a different perspective. And I think when you are young, you're very adaptable. It's only when you come at certain age, you go to a different country, it creates a lot of problems. 
because you cannot, uh, your flexibility isn't there. By the young age, you are very flexible, you're very adaptable, you can adapt to the atmosphere, your surrounding um, quite easily. And that's what the, I think my initial reaction was the weather, probably the time of the year I came, I wasn't primed for it, never knew because this is how it was. Come December, it was snow and it was one foot of snow and never done that before. So that was, the first year was a bit difficult, but we got used to it after that. And you slowly built up a life for yourself. Um, let's talk about your love life. <laughs> uh, I thought that was going to come soon. Um, you have to get to the juicy bits, of course. So, uh, yeah, 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 of course. Um, how did you meet your lovely wife? <laughs> how did I meet the lady of my life? I'll tell you something. You know how much pressure sometimes the Indian family in the old days they put on you? Uh, right now, you're about 25, 30. Uh, when you want to get married, there's so and so. If you are a if you are the boy, also oh, and so's daughter is there. And if you are a girl, so and so's son is available, that's so and so. And all that goes around, you know, trying to match make and introduce all the uncles and aunts of the family. But because I was always, like I said, I've having gone through so many different things, different jobs I did, and everything let do a different activity in my life. Uh, before I come to the love life, uh, my first job was in Sweden leather trade. So that was in manufacturing. And we used to make, uh, the company did Sweden leather garments. And in way back in 70s and 80s, a four court, what we produced, manufactured, would cost about 10 grand in self-figures. So, you know, I used to be in that. But that's where I picked up my passion for fashion, <laughs> which led into so many other courses into the fashion industry of design and everything. When that one, I left and started with the International Uniform, which was my, the biggest company I worked for, or the longest I worked apart from where I am now, I did all aspects of clothing industry, I could walk in, in a warehouse and build a whole factory from start to finish. Like setting up a factory machinery, production line, how we can floor on the floor space till the garment is ready, goes in the truck, there what it needs to be delivered to. So I learned all that for a span of 23 years and I had a quite a very senior position there being the only Asian person. It was a family farm, but they really looked after me as their own son. I was treated very well in there. But anyway, so in between my work life, I also had a social life, um, which was quite hectic in some respect. I used to belong to the young professional people's uh, organization called the Round Table. The older version was called the Rotary clubs, which you might have heard, mm -hmm. uh, which used to be very popular in East Africa as well. The round table being a young people at the age of 40, you have checked out. You can't go any further than 40, but uh, there were some rules being changed in later years. So I was in, heavily involved in that, did a lot of things which I would have never dreamt of doing myself. 
And one good thing came out of that was it gave you a lot of contacts. It was, it's an organization's, I wouldn't say it's used within the wheels, but you came to know a lot of people. You had a lot of contacts in different fields, different uh, trade, because all aspects of life people come and join. And when that finished, I never joined in Rotary because that was a nice thing. A, because there was a lot of age difference and they met every week and I couldn't commit my time every week. And then my round table as well, my company's uh, social calendar, in the sense of social, not social, outing with work, uh, parties or anything, but it's like out with the clients, um, traveling abroad, traveling in UK, wherever companies based, used to go backwards and forwards. After the round table and all that, when it's all finished, I joined 41 Club, which is the offshoot of that. And finally, when I joined that, I also joined the Masonry, which I'm still currently a member in both, all three of them are membership. So one thing what you learned out of all that was how to stand up and speak in front of 100, 500, 650, wouldn't fear you. That is one thing that was very, very good move. And I think unless you are given an opportunity to stand up and speak for five, 10 minutes, just boom, straight out, uh, it's not a very easy thing to do. If you, you can ask somebody off the street and say, right, can you speak in front of 50 people now? I think they'll be nervous. Mm. You couldn't do that. And that is one biggest thing I learned. So amongst all these things, going back in late 80s, there is my mother. Of so-and-so's daughter, so-and-so's daughter, so-and-so's daughter. And I'm saying, no, mother, I'm busy this week. I'm busy that week. I'm busy that week. Never got around to it. And then one day, my youngest sister, she rang up and said, listen, you're getting on. There is somebody who can introduce to you a nice doll. I said, all right, let's go. By now I was hearing every week, every day. So let's just go and see, well, what have I got to lose? Did I have an opinion? Um, you go and see something, if it's in a shop you don't like it, you don't buy it. Nothing gain, nothing lost. But you go and see somebody and to say no, it doesn't come across to me. It's like me going and see some girl and I said, oh, I don't like her. Um, no, not my type or not this, not that. How does that girl feel? In the same way the girl comes and says, well, that girl, no, I don't like him. He's a little bit fat and too short. <laughs> Um, got no sense of humor or whatever. How do you think he's gonna feel? But that's what their personality is. It's, it makes you feel like cattle market, put, put it bluntly. Um, even in cattle market, you pick and choose the, um, the pedigree of the animal. Yeah, so and similarly, I never felt comfortable with that. So I never went to see anyone. But anyhow, this particular day, my sister, my youngest sister, Pretty, she and one of the their friend, the friends, we, we, we used to be the community leader as well. 
in our society. And there were two of them. Now, at the girl I married, the wife I've got now, and her puppy, her sister-in-law. There were two of them. And I thought it was the sister-in-law, not her. Neither ah. that I, I didn't know who they were. Anyway, so there we are sitting down in Wembley. I think I've showed you this uh, number of times when we passed on the yeah, road, yeah. where the office was and opposite, there was a restaurant. So two of us went in the restaurant, had something to eat, some bite, and said, okay, we'll kept in touch. It went on for a few months and then something happened and I just drifted away for, I don't know, a few months. And then she'd given up. She used to ring up my mom and my mom would say, oh, he's out, which which in genuinely I was always out when she used to ring up. <laughs> did she did, did, did she believe it? Did she buy it? <laughs> Whether she did or not, it was a fact. I wasn't at home. Uh, because I was involved in a lot of institutes like um, my um, charitable societies like what I saved around table, masonry and all the other things. Uh, the other thing was also the Institute of Directors, IOD, was known in the trade, and which is a very, very strong, powerful organization. So we used to, I had to have a very um, busy diary. However, the weekends were always free, but committed to a certain degree. And after a few months, it was um, my brother's uh, engagement, uh, like Sanji, and we were in East London. Now, her family and numerous family, they knew very well from back from Africa. And there I am standing there with my cousin, uh, Smitha, and she, Nimra and her family walks in and there's my cousin standing and I'm just standing like that too, of course, you know, Smith and me. And she walks in, she sees, and I see her coming in. So I just went like that. And- You waved at her? Waved at her and then eventually she came. And even then she said, oh, and she goes, oh, so you, you got married or something like that. I said, no, that's my cousin. Ah. <laughs> Um, and then we started again, and I think this was in about autumn time. And in by February the following, I proposed her. Oh. And in May, June, we had the registry. I think June it was in May. Can't remember that date, but in August of 26, we got married in 1990. What was it about her that made you think, all right, this is the one? Aha, uh -huh. <laughs> no, no, that puts you in a bit of a doubt. That's a big question. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think the very first time I saw her, you know, it was her eyes would took me up. Oh, and, oh that's sweet. And her sweet smile on the face. That's, that really took me. And her very gentleness to it. Nothing showing off or anything like that. Just, just natural. But I think first thing was her eyes would caught me. Well, and you can see the connection between you even now. It's as strong as as I, I assume it was then. Um, and so you married in 1990. Yeah. And then 
you were in Harrow at that time already in the house? No, I was no. living at home. Um, I was the last sibling, being the eldest, I was the last one married. Yeah. A sister after me was the first one, then my youngest sister, then my brother, and then me. So the two girls were married first in my family, then my younger brother. I think I was a very considerate elder brother, making sure that all my younger ones were married and looked after before I went away. Yeah. So I was at home after being married for about two, three years. But in between, we bought this property and we lived in Hounslow. Okay. Now, the house that you're currently in right now as we're filming this podcast, it's very interesting because to the left of you, you've got underground tube station. And to the right of you, you've got a very interesting neighbour. Who is your neighbour? Very, very interesting neighbour. It just, <clears throat> it just happens a coincidence. It was that house, my brother and me, we bought it. Ah. But because he got married first, he had the option to either leave or we sell the house and move our different ways. And he decided he would stay there. So he bought me out. And I bought this house here. My sister used to live here. So my sister moved from here to Pina. And she said, this house is on sale if you want it. Next to the stations, the transport, everything. Schools are good in hell, which they were. And so that's how we ended up here. I and you've been house. living next to your brother ever since? <laughs> ever since. And then a few years later, um, Akhil and Mira come on the scene. So Akhil, your son, and then a couple of years later, Mira. And what was that like being a father for the first time? Very different. I think it's uh, it's like every stage in life, uh, from the time you're born, uh, your younger years, then you become a teenager, you get married, um, you suddenly the sense of responsibility comes to you. It hits you in a such a way that until that time, you're not really aware. You think about it. Yeah, mom and dad, mom and dad, do this, mom does this. You want anything, dad, mom, done. But now it's you. They're going to call you that. And you got to do what you had the privilege of being done all those years ago. And that's how it goes. And I think... It was a joy in a way to be a parent. It's always will be a joy. And especially the two kids I got like him and Mira. What can I say? It was great. It was great feeling. I think it gave us a lot of sense of responsibility. It gets you maturity. You have a different outlook on life. And it's something very, very, um, very fulfilling. Are there any traits in Akhil or Mira that you feel well, came from you that you see in, within yourself? Well, I think there are certain elements uh, I can see, you know, or I'm sure they will uh, carry on. Because I was brought up from very young age, believing in the religion what we were born in, or born with, um, being Hindus, you know. At a very young age, my sisters, brother and me, we used to go to the temple and sleep for nine days, 10 days or 11 days. 
uh, the uh, scripture reading, like Ramayana or whatever, every night from seven to whatever time. And I think even when we came in this year, always, I don't go to the temple that often. However, the little thing what I have in the house is my temple. It's what you believe in. If you have a belief, your temple is there. Every morning I have my prayers, even at four o'clock in the morning, have my prayer, then go to work. And I hope they'll follow that. And I can say he does that with my mother very yeah. well. Yeah. Do you have anything to say about that? What do you, what do you feel like your dad's taught you? Um, I, I think there's uh, quite a few bits. I think what he mentioned at the beginning, kind of that sort of handiness around the house, you know, you know, knowing how to, to build certain things that I for detail. I kind of really, I think that's not just that, but you can see that trait running throughout you know, his side of the family. Um, whatever whatever task it is they're doing or whatever their skill is, they're you know, very particular with how it's done, making sure it's done properly, you know, um, and just having that kind of useful knowledge um, around the house. I think I think we're trying to pick up uh, and have you know, some some skill with, but need, need to improve on a little bit. Yeah. Now, when your dad come in time, yeah, which will come in time, you know, and I mean, it is only what twenty five at, at that age. I was out probably every night, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> out in the town. <laughs> <laughs> well, not exactly, but uh, <laughs> maybe that's the trait I want to pick up. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Well, it, I think these days uh, it's not that easy. What it used to be then, I could walk from central London or from Chippewa to Hounslow without having any fear. But today, if you walk from here to the top of the road, you never know what's going to happen. Right. So there's a lot of difference in that. And um, Akil, what was it like for you growing up next door to your uncle and aunt and your cousins? That must have been quite an experience. Yeah, yeah, it's been brilliant. Probably the highlight of kind of living here in particular and um, so you know in our garden we have um we, we have we used to have this fence between the two gardens and I remember especially when we were younger um we be a real struggle to have to like climb over it and jump over it so one day then we thought you know, what's the point of this so we just took down the whole fence and then we had like what was like a huge garden um and it was really nice because you, you know you get that interaction with your cousins you grow up um, you know, playing games in the garden, playing sports. I mean, even today I went for, we went into the, uh, the park for a walk with my cousins next door, um, as did Mira. Um, and it's also nice with my kaki and kaka. You, know, you kind of, you grow up with another set of parents right there. Um, and you know, same for them, with mom and dad. Yeah. Oh. And um, uncle, let's go back to you. Um, so you had this um, sort of career in fashion and design and you were doing all these courses and you're learning loads and loads. Um, but then what happened? Because when you first came to England, you landed in Heathrow. And now, did you ever think that you'd end up back in Heathrow <laughs> in the profession that you're at in, in um, retail, retail and uh, work, working in duty-free? It's just that um, when I left the, the um, yeah, 1997. When the company I was then working for, it, it closed and they gave me an option to move up north. 
um, which is a small village called Golbom. It's near Junction 23. Now, there are race courses of Haydock, no. One of the big race courses there near the off the run park, runway, off the motorway. And um, that's where I had to move, and I didn't particularly want to move in those days, knowing that once I move, sell this place, if I decide to come back, I will now be able to come back to London. The prices will shoot up. So I declined it. Following that, I went, did a year and a half like self-employment, uh, freelance work, a lot of design work, freelance service packages I used to do with banks, building society in launching their um, uniform program from start to finish, from scratch till the garment went on a person's back. So I did a lot of that, but then being having a small family as well by then, uh, it wasn't very easy that one month you're working, you needed to have a, a sort of like a stable income every month, not fluctuations in it. Um, in those days, the mortgage was uh, not, yeah, it was sustainable. Things are still sustainable, like with them, but when you're not working, it's a different ball game. And being the first time I ever done freelance work for about 18 months, two years, some months were absolutely brilliant, some months were required, nothing happening, and you sort of thought, hmm, uh, this is not going to work. Now, for that 23 years I did in uniform, it was a very high pressure job. It wasn't easy. And there was like production, design, a lot of things. So I just wanted a completely different change. The airport, though, I came at Heathrow, I ended up there, but was because I knew Heathrow, it was associated with Heathrow. But most of the uniforms we used to manufacture were airlines. So I knew a lot of people at the, in the airline business. And it just, I thought, let me go completely different now. Go into retail sector, why not? Yeah. So I started working there. And you've been there and ever since? Almost, and it's nearly 20 years now. And so you must clearly enjoy it um and that you know you're a very, you're very much a people's person so i'm sure you enjoy that interaction yeah i have um i sort of now think that i could have changed but i didn't bother it's um the timings and everything which i had the benefits suited in so many different ways for example when Akhil and Mira were little, like four days in a week, I could drop them and I could pick them up as well and still have my uh, other activities. Mm. So it worked in a lot of ways. It, it benefited because uh, never to be in a teacher in the school. She could drop them, she could pick them uh, in the early days. But then when she was doing full-time work, uh, it was a bit different, a bit difficult. So me doing shift work at the airport just fitted in perfect. And that worked so far. Yeah. And now he can do the running around. <laughs> yeah, and you can relax. <laughs> I wish. Um, 
where do you see your life going now? So if we think about, you know, for whenever you decide to retire. Um, um, I would just say that um, I think probably I would retire maybe between the next three and five years. Certainly not longer than that. But I would still carry on working even after that, just two, three days or a couple of days, six hours a day. I'd rather be out of the house because when you retire, and I've seen so many people, they retire six months down the line, they're like cabbage. And yeah. So unless you have a plan or you have a lot of activities or you're a keen sports person, like golfer or something else that you can carry on, with, which isn't going to be very strenuous, then you're fine. Otherwise, I think it becomes very, uh, you're boring. And once you get bored, your mind starts dropping down, your ego goes down, your everything, esteem goes down, and suddenly you feel, oh, all this year I was wanted. Now, look at me, I'm like a cabbage. I don't know anything. So it, it, it doesn't uh, help you much. So from that point of view, I'd rather work. Even if it is part-time, I would probably carry on doing that. But yes. definitely retire within the next, between two and five years, not more than that. Any hobbies you think you'd take up with your extra time once you retire? Well, I've still got my Masonic activities, which I'm heavily involved. Uh, I've been through the chair of every institute I've belonged to. Maybe mm. about six of them I belong to. Some of them I've been through the chair three times. I'm heavily, in, I'm quite, I wouldn't say I'm heavily, heavily involved like some of the other people, but they are retired and they got the time. I don't, I work and I fit in my family, work and social, all three lives together. So sometimes the balance has to be there. I can't devote that much time as the others do, but I'm still very much involved. Um, currently I'm secretary in two of those units, but keeps me busy. Yeah, definitely. Keeps my mind off something else. Uh, okay to just to round this interview up what would you say what would be one life lesson that you would want Akhil and Mira to take on as they grow up older into life one life lesson that you've learned along the way well I think if one thing what I would probably is to be like every parent's wish would be is to be successful um have a happy life, be kind, considerate person, be a, a, a good human being. That's what I think my wish would be, that they would follow that. And that's what I think I would like them to enjoy life, be happy, uh, be content. There's always an expectation that uh, I wish I had that, I wish I had this, I need this, but be content. If you work for it, you get it. The other day is happiness what will keep you going. Okay. And a good rule. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. That was really good um, to hear your story. Thank you.